All right, let's take our Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter number 6. Galatians chapter number 6, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses here this week and then uh, probably wrapping up this series through the book of Galatians on next Sunday. Uh, and so I hope that it's been a help and a blessing to you. It has been a challenge to me. And uh, it's, been, it's been at times laborious in study, which is, is at times is a blessing. Uh, because it's challenged my thinking and my heart. It's really, uh, in a lot of ways, flown in the face of everything that I was taught uh, as a young Christian and coming up through college and uh, and in in just the early days of what our church movement was and how it manifested itself. And uh, this, it's really that it's not that all the conclusions were wrong. It's the way that we got there was wrong. Uh, and so we have to come back true to. Uh, the Word of God and getting to the right answers the right way uh, as God gave them. And so that's been the, the journey for me, and I hope that it's been enlightening to you at least at times. And if not, at least reminded us of the things that we need to be reminded of. But here, the first 10 verses this morning, again, this is familiar territory. These are verses that if you've been in church any length of time, at one time or another, you've heard them preached. And I will just tell you from the get-go, and this will get you thinking, it'll put some of you on edge, it'll get you either to tune in or tune out real fast. When we get to be not deceived, God is not mocked. We've, we've, we've made good application, but we really haven't understood what it's talking about. Uh, and so I, I hope that that'll be something that'll help us this morning. Uh, in verse 1, he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. I'll explain that apparent contradiction in a minute. Uh, and so, but it is not, it's just a different view. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, the manifestations of a spirit-empowered life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. The Holy Spirit, we seek your guidance. Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, we claim the promise, Lord Jesus, that when we gather together just a few, just two or three, that you're here with us and we need you. I pray that you give clarity of thought. I pray that you would guide my words, that you'd help me to communicate effectively what you've given. And Lord, may we accept and embrace uh, the truths that you reveal to our hearts, Spirit of God, each one in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I titled it the way that I did because a lot of times you hear preaching about being filled with the Spirit. I... I I kind of struggle with that terminology because the fact of the matter is, is that when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you got all of the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to get. You don't get more incrementally. He moved in, lock, stock, and barrel. He's there. That doesn't mean that I allow him as a Christian to have liberty within my life 
in which he can empower my life uh, to, live, to live the life that God's given me to live. And so, uh, I, what does the Christian life look like? The Apostle Paul here, for five chapters essentially, has taken them to, uh, to task and confronted false doctrine, false teaching, the addition of the keeping of the law for salvation and for, uh, for living a godly life in Christ Jesus and that being the judgment of that. And he's talked about the struggle within the church leadership and, and he's talked about the struggle with how it looks practically and how it's contradictory to how they feel and how they've, uh, how they've been raised and what they've known all their life. Uh, and chapter 5, he really switches gears and begins to get practical. He said, okay, here are the issues. Now, what does that look like in our lives practically? Uh, and so we saw <clears throat> last week that, that, we were, uh, that we were looking into uh, God's, him giving them this instruction for living in the Spirit. So what does it look like for someone to live under the guidance of the Holy Spirit? And he, he really gave them about five points to hone in on. He said, recognize that there's a war that's going on within your own heart. Uh, and so it's not just, okay, I found Christ, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, and so now everything is easy and everything is great and everything is wonderful. Everything can be, but it's not easy and it is a struggle and that old man is still there. Uh, and he told us in verse 16 of chapter 5, he said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, that, that desire of the flesh is still there and it's going to be until we come into the presence of God. Then he said, relent to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, he said, but if you be led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so what's the answer? I have to lead, let the Spirit lead me. In other words, I have to relent. I have to let go. I have to stop fighting. I have to let God have control. Then he said, resign the works of the flesh. In verses 17 and 21, he said, these are the list of things that are, that are just blatant, obvious works of flesh. Determine not to do them. You're going to do them, but determine not to do them. There's that war, there's that struggle, and the Spirit of God uh, will help you. Then he said, be reformed by the fruit of the Spirit. How do I know I'm being reformed? Because the fruit of the Spirit begins to show up in my life. It's not a matter of, okay, I'm going to look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to say, I'm going to be more loving, I'm going to find joy, I'm going to find peace. It's not a matter of us going out and manufacturing those things. It's a matter of us walking with the Spirit of God so that He can bring those things and develop those things within us. We're not looking for manufacturing. We're not looking for conformity. We're looking for a life that the Spirit of God has moved into and begins to transform us internally into the image of Christ. And this is the manifestation of how that looks. And then he said in verses 24 and 25 that we are to re regenerate or recommit our lives to the process. I want to be committed to the fact that God's going to change my life and I want him to. Uh, and so we see there that if we live in the Spirit... He says, let us also walk in the Spirit, and we are truly alive in the Spirit or regenerated. We are instructed to walk in the Spirit. Now, when Paul's giving this to understand the Spirit, it's been said that the, this final chapter, Paul is affectionately exhorting the Galatian believers. He's not, he's not now confronting error. He is lovingly trying to help them understand what this is going to look like practically in their lives. What it looks like to live in the liberty of the gospel under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God from day to day. Now, it's interesting here, he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So, well, Pastor, what's the difference? Well, we're living in the Spirit, the Spirit's in us, but to walk in the Spirit. Now, here's an interesting thing. 
the word that's used there, that's given there for walk, is the same word, or at least the same root, that was given in chapter 4, uh, in verse number 4, when, or in verse number 3, when he said, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Remember the elements of the world. And that's a few messages ago. Uh, it means literally to be in row or rank and to mark and step in cadence uh, like a military unit, and they would, under their schoolmaster or their pedagogue, uh, the one that criticized everything that they did, they, they walked under his authority uh, to the march of his beat and under his criticism as he tried to get them ready to deliver to the father to the adoption of sons. Uh, that's the same word that's used here. So, Pastor, we're supposed to live in, listen, what he's saying is, as you walked in lockstep to that pedagogue, Walk in lockstep with the Spirit of God. Let the Spirit of, but He's not here to criticize you. He's here to help you. He's here to encourage you. He's here to lift you up. Will He correct you when you're out of step? Of course He will. Uh, and so, uh, in, in, a matter of fact, if you're in a military unit and you were marching and you got out of step, uh, there's a little step that you take that gets you back in step. It looks kind of funny when you do it, but it puts you right back in step uh, with the whole rest of the unit. What he's saying here is that we are to walk in sync or in step with the Holy Spirit of God. We're not trying to get him to come along to what we want. We are to be unified in listening to him so that we're walking in step with him. You want to live in the Spirit? Walk in step with the Spirit. He's not, he's not adjusting to us. We are being transformed into the image of Christ so that we walk with him. And so, again, it is that word stoichion or stoichion, which means to walk in row or rank and to cadence under the command and the control of the Holy Spirit in this instance. Uh, and so we're under that loving care. And so this is the great shift from Judaism to Christianity. This is the great shift that in the modern day we experience when we go from a life of legalistic ministry, teaching, philosophy, and service to God to a life of liberty. It is not a liberty to just go do what we want. It is the liberty that carries with it a responsibility to walk under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. If I just embrace liberty and reject walking in the Spirit of God, then my life, my worship, my, uh, my standards, my convictions, all of those things are not going to look much different than the world. It's going to look like a lot of uh, flesh-satisfying entertainment rather than Christ-honoring walk with the Spirit of God. It's not liberty to just, hey, I don't have to worry about, I can do what I want, worship God on Sundays and live like the devil all week. That's not what Paul's message is. Paul's message is you have a responsibility and you have the liberty to walk in this, the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. The law is a blanket application that is equally con condemnative of every person that is under it. The walk of the Spirit of God meets your needs where you are in the moment that you're in to lead you. So one Christian's life might look a lot different than another's. One's beliefs might look not in core doctrine, but uh, in the way that we maybe view a standard or, uh, or, or the way that we view some other element that uh, looks different for us. And the way that I view it now may not be the way that I view it 10 years from now as the Spirit grows me and changes me into the image of God. But that's between every believer in Christ, not uh, for the church or for the law to come down and try to blanketly cover everyone. That's the shift. That's the life that they were living. And so what's he saying here? Listen, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through our spiritual leaders. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through spirit-filled brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so what's the point, Pastor? Listen, uh, the point is, is that it's all about relationships. It's not about a law. It's not about a rule book. It's not about, it's about relationships. A relationship with Jesus. A relationship with my pastor, assistant pastor, youth pastor, uh, uh, a Sunday school teacher, deacon. A relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are to be uh, in lockstep together with the Holy Spirit of God as a church. So that whenever someone stumbles, you're there to pick them up. And you're there to, uh, to lift them up. If somebody's lagging behind, you, you carry them through. I remember oftentimes when I was in the military and we'd be in a company exercise and, uh, and I had long legs and, uh, and back then was pretty skinny and, uh, and we, we'd be going up a mountain somewhere and, uh, and I'd, somebody would be lagging behind and I was just a, a junior NCO but I'd be one of the ones that was kind of tasked with being back to help those that were lagging behind stay with the group and to get caught up and if they had uh, needed medical attention to get it, those kinds of things. It's just that that's what the church is to be. So listen, sometimes somebody's going to lag behind. They don't need to be left behind and they don't need to be condemned or ridiculed. They need to be encouraged and they need to be strengthened. Sometimes that might mean putting your arm around them and help carry the burden. It might help carry them along. It might help shoulder some of their weight. It might mean taking their pack for a while, even though you've already got your own and you're carrying your gear and their gear so that their load is lightened so that they can until you get back on level ground, until they get some strength, until they catch their wind. That's the idea of what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey here, that the Holy Spirit is seeking through his word, spiritual leaders, spiritual-filled brothers and sisters in Christ, and our relationships with one another within the church to glorify God and to help one another along. So what does that look like in the practical everyday life? And that's the great question and that's the question that the Apostle Paul is trying to answer for them here. Because this is radically different than anything that they've ever experienced in their life. And their Christian life is new. The establishment of the church is young. And so it's not been around a long time and they're trying to figure out as the Holy Spirit's giving it to the writers and, uh, and they're putting it out there. And so he says, listen, what does it look like? What does it look like to walk under the influence, the guidance, and, the, and, and to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in my life? To live a Spirit-empowered life will manifest itself in these ways. Number one this morning. A Spirit-empowered life is a life of restoration. Notice that he says in verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken on fault, you which are spiritual, restore such in one. In a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we're going to understand this this morning. It's good uh, at times to understand what, how did God use this. The very first time that the word brethren ever appears in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 13 and verse number 8. The Bible there, Abraham is dealing with a problem that he has with his servants and the servants of Lot. And he says in, in verse the eight of chapter 13 of Genesis, And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. And so what do we learn from that? Now, I can't get and preach a whole message on that this morning, but it does give us some insight into brethren if a man be overtaken in a fault. And the word brethren here simply means family. It is, the, it is to be bound by the blood of Christ. If you've been saved, if you know what it is to some level to walk with God, you will be amazed that when you go, as you travel from one church to another, uh, where there are genuine believers, that there's an instant connection. You know, maybe you've never even met before, but you just instantly feel like, I'm connected to you. I, 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 I want to be here. I want to, it's just, you really, the lost world can't even begin to understand. 
Why? Because we're bound by the blood of Christ. And it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter the culture, it doesn't matter the ethnicity, it doesn't matter uh, the, the background. What matters is that the blood of Christ we have in common and it brings us together. Amen. Brethren. So what is Abraham showing us here? What we have here is Abraham and Lot and their, their kinsmen, their, their brothers, their, their blood kin. And they are in dispute. The servants of Abraham, the servants of Lot, they've expanded, they've acquired wealth, they've accumulated livestock, and, uh, and their servants are fighting over who gets the best pastures and who gets the easiest access to water and all of those types of things. And so Abraham comes and he makes a proposal. But Abraham's proposal and Lot's reaction to it expose their character. It exposes one as spiritual and one as carnal. And I believe that that manifests itself as brethren here in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. So, well, pastor, what is it? Well, Abraham makes a proposal that involves his own surrender, the surrender of his own rights and prerogatives. See, we live in a time where we think that, hey, I've got liberty in Christ. This is the age of grace. And, uh, and I've got liberty. I'm not under the law. That means I can do whatever. No, listen to what Abraham's example was. Abraham's example was to put aside his own rights and his own prerogatives for the good of his relationship with Lot. And he reveals himself as a spiritual man who's walking with God, who is living by faith because he's not, hey, I'm older, I'm the uncle, I'm senior, I'm the one that God has made a promise to, I'm the one that has the covenant with God, so I'm going to take this and Lot and you just have this over here. He wasn't going to have that. He wasn't going to feed an opportunity for Lot to grow bitter towards him. He wasn't going to put out there a, a reason for Lot to think, you've taken advantage of me, or you're doing this to hurt me. He says, Lot, here's the problem. We're, we're too crowded. You pick whatever you want, and I'll take what's left. You want the best water? Take the best water. You want the best meadows to, to graze? Take the best meadows. I don't care. I just you, you choose. I have the right. I have the authority. It's my prerogative. But I cede that to you for your benefit. So what's Lot's response? Lot's response isn't, I need to pray about this. It's not, I need to think about it. He says, really? Great. I like looking down at Sodom. Let me, let me take, I'll take this land. Best water, best fields, best view. And look where it led him. What essentially Lot just revealed himself to be a man of carnality. He just cared about what his eyes saw and what his flesh wanted. Now that manifests itself sometimes inside the church with things that we would equate to spiritual activity, religious activity. And so, but what's our motive behind it? And so he says, brethren, if a man be overtaken. Now when I think about the word overtaken, I tend to think about I'm running along and I'm just going and then I can, I, I can hear, and at my advanced age, I can, I can, I'm out walking or, or trying to trot a little bit and I can, I can hear somebody that's young coming up behind me. I don't hear them as well as I used to. I used to hear them from a long way off. Now sometimes they get pretty close. Uh, but I'm just cruising along and I got a good pace going for me. And, uh, and all of a sudden I hear this feet coming up behind me. And it's coming and it's coming and it's coming. And then finally they pull even and then finally they go on. And if it's a young guy that's, you know, in his 20s and he's pretty fit and he's cruising along, uh, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'll tip the hats off to you. But if it's a young girl, I'm just like so demoralized. I just got, I just got schooled by this chick. And it's like, it's devastating. That's what I think of when I think about overtaking. It's somebody coming up. 
And it can mean that, but in this context, what it really means is to surprise. And so when you look at it in the depth of it and you look at it in the context, it's to take before, to, for, to foresee before one could flee. I, if I see it coming, I can flee. But if it surprises me, now what's he talking about? If a man be overtaken in a fault. A fault here is not, he's not referring to someone that just willfully calculates and plans their sin. He's not speaking to someone that just says, you know what? I want to sin. I'm going to sin. I know God said he'll forgive me. I'm going to, or somebody that's wrapped up in habitual sin and they're trying to, they're living an immoral lifestyle and they're just saying, you know what? God loves me anyway. I'm just going to keep living this way. God will bless me anyway. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about if a man be overtaken in a fault. In other words, it, it has the connotation of a besetting sin. If someone that is dealing with, uh, maybe they have an angry spirit. Maybe they're selfish. Maybe they've got, you know, any number of things that become besetting sins to us. They're just part of our character. And uh, they're things that we know that are problems and we work to try to resolve them. But every so often, we just lose control and they flare up. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. He's not saying, hey, uh, that guy out there that's a hardcore drug addict that doesn't care and he just is going to come so that he can uh, get some food and then he's going to go right back to his, uh, to his bad habits and to his sinful ways. That's not what he's talking about. Don't cast your pearls before swine. If it's somebody that, uh, different message that was recent, but, uh, but, but be, be following the Spirit's lead. If someone's in that element and God's working on them and ready to bring them out, by all means, do everything you can uh, to follow the Spirit's lead and to reach them out. But listen, he said, if a man be overtaken in a fault, if, if somebody loses the, in the moment and they, 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 they collapse in this moment, but they're really striving to walk with God, you which are spiritual, restore such an one. What does the word restore mean? The word restore means simply to mend that which has been broken. But it's not just a casual, okay, you know, I put a Band-Aid on it, it's mended. You know, your grandkid or your child comes in and they fall and they skin their knee and they come in and, uh, and you put a Band-Aid on it. My granddaughters were at the house the other day and that was about a week or so ago. And, uh, and Brooklyn, she's the second oldest of our six grandchildren. And, uh, and so she comes in and she's got a burn on her arm. She uh, she walked in and I think she, I think what she did is that she, uh, she got where her mom was working on her, or her hair and she laid her arm on the hot curling iron and it burned her. So she got a little burn on her arm and so she had some gauze on it and she had some, she had some tape on it, but in the course of things it came loose and so she wanted, uh, she wanted my wife to re-bandage it and they, my grandkids call her Guayla. Uh, and so she wanted Guayla to fix it. And so she comes in and uh, all my wife had, she had a piece of gauze and she had, uh, uh, she had cocomel and band-aids. All right, so Brooklyn is five, all right? So she puts the gauze on and she gets a cocoa melon Band-Aid and she puts it on there and she puts it there and Brooklyn just looks up her with this look of disgust and she says, Guayla, cocoa melon, seriously? Uh, and so uh, she, has this, she has this thing that needs to be repaired, right? It's not talking about just taking care of a casual thing. Listen, th these problems that are besetting sins, they're real problems. And I may get victory over it today in this moment, but it's not, and I may have victory over it for months and months and months, and it not even be really a temptation, but it catches me at the right time, in the right moment, something that I maybe haven't struggled with for years, and all of a sudden it's right there in my face, and it took me completely by surprise, and I stumble. I don't need to be discarded by the brethren. I need to be restored. Amen. Amen. And so a life of restoration, 
is a life that's spirit-led. To restore has with it the idea of Luke chapter 10 and verses 30 through 35 where you see the parable uh, of the Good Samaritan where he goes to that one that he knows loathes him and he carries him to help and he pays for his extended care. When he can't stay, he goes on and leaves money behind so that his needs are met and he's cared for. It's a process of rehabilitation. Somebody struggles, you pick them up. But you, you, if you need to spend extra time, you spend extra time. If you need to get them into some counsel, you get them some counsel. If you need to, uh, if you need to, uh, to, to invite them uh, to go with you or to go through a study or to do whatever's necessary that's appropriate to the, to the stumble, uh, it is restoring one. It is to mend what's been broken. Then it is to bear one another's burdens. And he says, bear you one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Now what he's talking about here is kind of the same idea of Proverbs 17, 17. Uh, when he says that a friend loveth at all times and a brother is born for adversity. My brothers and sisters in Christ, my pastor, my Sunday school teacher, my deacon ought to be there to help lift me up. Ye which are spiritual, restore such in one. To bear that burdens. The burdens are besetting sins which constitute a heavy burden. But when we love one another, we fulfill the law. And so he just lays out there it is a life of restoration. Now four thoughts about this before we move on to our second point this morning. Restorative living has the vision of Christ-likeness. I'm not going to pick you up so that you can go back to the world. I want to pick you up and get you back on track. I want to get you back in step. I want to get you back in rhythm with the Spirit of God in your life. That's our goal. So my goal as a pastor, your goal as a brother or sister in Christ, if someone that you're close to, someone that you love, someone that you're invested in, uh, and, and you, see, uh, you see them have a bad week, you see them have a rough day, rather than kicking them while they're down, go to them and help them and pick them up and help rehabilitate them. And sometimes that might be as easy as putting a Band-Aid on it. Sometimes it might take a, a lot more labor-intensive effort. Uh, but what you're trying to do ultimately is look at someone who has a desire in their heart to walk in the Spirit who has been overtaken by a, by a habitual besetting sin and you're lifting them up and you're encouraging them until they get back in step and have the strength to continue on walking in the Spirit on their own. You which are spiritual, restore such a one. Restorative living has the vision of Christ-likeness. I have the vision of I want my life to look like Christ. I want your life to look like Christ. I want to help you as you help me achieve a Christ-likeness in our walk with the Spirit of God. Secondly, restorative living has a vision of the problem. You can't fix a problem that you don't identify correctly. And this is kind of getting to the heart of things. And we're going to spend some time on this in the next point. But it's not just... Oh yeah, I, I casual, oh I can look and see. No, this is like an MRI. I got some pain, I've got a problem. The doctor can kind of poke and prod around and say, well, I think it might be this and I think it might be that. But until they put you in the machine, until they get an MRI, they really don't know. They can offer their opinion, but until they can look and see the true cause, they really don't know what to do. What I'm talking about here is that MRI vision that the Spirit can give. The restorative living has a vision of the problem. In other words, we have to learn to honestly self-evaluate. And we're going to spend some time on that in just a moment. Thirdly, restorative living helps bear the burden. 
If I'm going to live restoratively, I have to walk with you and I have to see that I have a vision for Christ in my life and in your life. And this is the problem. Let's work together to solve and resolve the problem. Let's get the strength that we need. Let's stand up. Uh, let me help you bear that burden. And then let me help you employ the fruit of the Spirit while we're bearing that burden. Fourthly. See, this manifests itself when he says here uh, that if a man be overtaken in a fall, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And the, spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. How does helping someone bear their burden manifest itself? By you and I walking in the spirit as we lift them and we demonstrate that that fruit of the Spirit in their life. That means when they're difficult, we're forbearing. That means when they're down, we bring some joy. That means uh, that when <coughs> they're puffed up, we handle it meekly. That the fruit of the Spirit is helping us to bring restoration to their life. Listen, it's different from verse number five. I'm going to get out of sync here just for a minute because I want us to understand the distinction here. But he says, uh, he says here in, in, uh, in verse number two, or, or bear, in verse number two, bear you one another's burden. But then in verse five, he says that every man shall bear his own burden. So what's the difference there so that we understand? The, essentially, in verse number five, what he's saying is that every man is going to get the just reward for their deed. It is that every man will bear their own burden. Everyone is going to, we'd say it this way, if we were mad at somebody and in the flesh, we'd say everybody's going to get what's coming to them. But what it really means is everyone's going to get the appropriate judgment from God on their life for their action. If I'm living spiritually and I'm walking with the Lord, if I'm virtuous and I have, the source, I have that source of happiness and joy within my heart. But if I'm living in sin and I'm going to bear the judgment of that and it's going to come to about, then I, I'm going to have to deal with the proper consequences for my sin. Every man shall have his proper reward. And so bear you one another's burdens. When someone's overtaken, when someone's fighting a besetting sin, uh, help them bear that burden. But if someone gets to the point where the realization that is that I, uh, I've, got to, uh, I've got to prove my own work and I've got to uh, find out in my own self how to have joy, I'm not dependent upon someone else for that, and we'll get to that in just a moment, that I'm going to bear my own burden. In other words, I'm going to receive from God the, the just consequence of my action and if I'm walking with him and I'm living for him and I'm I'll have rejoicing and I'll have blessing but if I'm not then I'll have chastening and so understand the difference there so we see first of all that the spirit-filled life is a life of restoration but secondly it's a life of resolve in verses three through nine we see the manifest itself where he says for if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing he deceiveth himself now I don't know that I've ever heard it preached this way, but you cannot really truly understand verses 7, 8, and 9 if you don't link it back to what he's saying in the context here. He says, but uh, for, if a man think himself to be something, be not deceived. God is not mocked. There, I have to be a, an honest self-evaluator. I have to live a life of resolve. Resolve for what? Well, first of all, I have to be resolved to live with integrity of heart. In verses 3 through 5, he really manifests that when he says, For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But it let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burden. 
So a couple of thoughts about this. Being resolved to live with integrity of heart. What are we talking about? Let every man, first of all, let every man prove. Understand what he's saying here. Let every man prove or let every man try, let every man examine or evaluate his own heart. If I'm not willing, listen, if I want to convince myself that I'm something that I'm not, I'm going to live accordingly. If, if you were to go and talk to every soft, freshman and sophomore uh, on, on the high school basketball teams uh, and on the high school football teams, you would find a common thing that a large percentage of those kids fully and truly believe that they're going to make it in the NBA and in the NFL one day. You can't hardly convince them otherwise. Well, Pastor, why would you want to? Well, rare is the one that the NFL draft happened this weekend. Maybe 250 or 60 guys out of how many thousands that played college football this last year were actually drafted. How many high school kids fed those colleges? A kid that makes it is the exception. They're not the rule. And most of us, if we'll honestly evaluate ourselves, will come to understand that I may love this and I may be good at it. I may have an aptitude, but I'm not going to make it to that. That's not a realistic goal. Now, if it is and all their counsel is that, my hat's off to them, kudos to them, that's great. Pursue your dream. But the reality is, is that they don't honestly evaluate themselves. They live in this fantasy world uh, and their, all their life decisions are based upon that. I remember dealing with kids uh, oftentimes when I was a youth pastor and even a pastor more so when I was in Arkansas when we had uh, a, a lot of kids like filtering through a Christian school. Uh, it, it was, the, I, you, you just couldn't convince them. They weren't good enough to make it on their high school basketball team, but they were convinced that they were going to be in the NBA someday. And you couldn't shake them. And there are a lot of people that are convinced that they're great Christians and they, they won't honestly self-evaluate. Now, I'm not trying to stand in, in judgment and say, hey, you've got this, this, and this. That makes you a good or bad Christian. That's not my point. My point is this, is that you have to, with the leadership of the Spirit of God, and I have to, with the leadership of the Spirit of God, allow him to evaluate me. I need to learn to evaluate my life and myself. Now, for if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And listen, I, you can take it the other way. Oh, I'm just not worthy to stand up there and preach or to sing or to do whatever. I've got talent, I've got ability, but I'm not worthy to sit at the piano and play it, or I've got talent and ability to interact with people, but I'm not worthy to be a greeter, or I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about, that's kind of the opposite flip, that's the opposite side of the pride coin. Where on the one side, yeah, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, I can do it. On the other side, oh, I could never do that, I'm not, well, never be worthy to do that. Listen, if God gave you talent and ability, use it for his glory. And so what Paul's getting across here is just simply be honest in your evaluation. Examine yourself with God's word and come in judgments. That's Paul's message. Listen, judgment's going to come. You know what's coming. You know what the Bible teaches. You know what this action is going to lead to. Make your evaluation with that in mind. With God's law, with God's love. And with God's judgment. You know all of that. The Spirit's revealed it to you. You've learned it in His Word. Evaluate yourself with that light. So examine yourself with the Word of God. Secondly, examine your own work. What do I do? 
couple of thoughts about this. First, an honest evaluation will produce realistic expectations. So what's the danger? The danger is, is that if I don't evaluate myself, uh, if I don't evaluate myself honestly, then I create unrealistic expectations in my life. And when I don't meet those expectations, then I feel defeated. And I quit and I give up. If you're a person here this morning and you've never read through your Bible, and a lot of times I'll try to encourage people to read through your Bible every year. I'm just trying to get you in the Word of God. But if you've never read through your Bible, if you've never read more than, say, a, a chapter a day, don't, don't commit to reading through it in a year this year. Add a chapter. Do more than you've done. Expand yourself and grow, but set an attainable, realistic goal. Understand who you are. Oh, Pastor, I've never prayed more than five minutes, but I'm going to commit that I'm going to pray an hour a day. No, you're not. I mean, you might make the commitment, but you're not going to see it through. So how do you know? If you do, you're the exception to the rule. You're the guy on draft day that's the star and not the one that thought he was going to be there that didn't even get invited to the party. This is how we are. We're, we're not honest with ourselves. And we think that we're going to be something that we're not. And we set unrealistic expectations. And when we fail, we give up and we quit and we feel defeated. And we feel like God failed us. And we feel like no one loves us. And we don't feel worthy to even come back to church or uh, to go to God in prayer. And let's just sit, be honest in your evaluation. God, you don't have to pray an hour to have God's favor. You do have to pray. But you don't, have to, you don't have to read 15 chapters a day to have God's favor. You don't have to do everything that a lot of Christians around you are doing in order to have the favor of God. The favor of God is the goal, not the favor of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. I'm just trying to get across this morning the idea that if I, have to, if I know that I'm weak in prayer, that I'm weak in church attendance, or if I'm weak in this, or I'm weak in that, and the Holy Spirit of God has drawn it to my conviction, and I feel my attention and I feel convicted in an urging of the Spirit of God to it, respond to that. Be, be honest with God and let God be honest with you about where you are so that you don't feel like a failure. Listen, I'd rather someone come in and say, Pastor, I've never read more than a chapter a day in my whole life. I'm going to read two. And they come in rejoicing three months later and say, I've done it. For two solid months, I've read two chapters every day. Praise be to God. You've got somewhere to go. You've got somewhere to grow. Get growing, but be honest. And so evaluating my own work, an honest evaluation will produce realistic expectations, not unattainable ones. Not only that, if I set and reach realistic goals, I will not be disappointed and I can rejoice. Notice what he says. He says, but let every man prove his own work and then shall he have rejoicing. In himself alone. It doesn't mean that I have rejoicing outside of Christ. It means I have rejoicing in that I succeeded. So I don't have to be supported by a brother. I don't have to be carried by a brother. I can stand on what God's done in my life. And in my growth. And how I've gotten rehabilitated. And how I've been strengthened. And how God is leading me. We looked at let every man prove. Now consider let every man rejoice. In Proverbs chapter 14 in verse number 14, uh, he alludes to this when he says, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from within himself. It's not self-satisfaction. 
it's the, the, the knowledge that God has led me and grown me and I'm walking with him to, to find uh, the favor of God in my life. A, a, a commentator, I'm going to share this with you this morning just quickly, uh, but gave in this context here the secret to happiness. Listen, if I'm true and I'm pure, then I have a reason to rejoice. If I'm following the Lord and I'm doing and making modest progress, I'm pleasing God. I'm pleased with him. He's pleased with me. And I can rejoice in what God's doing in my life. Uh, and being not doing is the secret to God's blessing. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. I remember being taught in college. I mentioned this in Sunday school class in the starting point class this morning. Uh, and if, if you know where I went to college and you know the college, you would have a hard time believing that I was actually taught this there. Uh, but it was really emphasized uh, that it's more, who you are is more important than what you do. This, we're not a church that's going to be filled with people and a pastor that's trying to lead people to just do, 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 do. And that's the be all and end all of our walk with God and whether we're godly or spiritually and God is pleased. Who are we? If we're not what God wants us to be, if we're not pleasing God, it doesn't matter what we do. Amen. If it's not the will of God, it doesn't matter what we do. So, Pastor, but, uh, but we're doing all these good things and we're doing all these things that, uh, that everybody else has, has done and people have gotten saved because of it. And that's wonderful. But if God hasn't led us to do it in this moment, then it's a distraction from becoming what God wants us to be. The devil's not going to try to trip a church up and people that have a heart for God up with uh, overtly sinful things. He tries to distract us with things that get us off the focus and the point. Listen, I can't, I can't go and perform surgery on someone until I've been through all of the schooling and been educated to do it. And you don't put a soldier in combat until he's been trained to handle the stress and to know the tactics of the battle. And so often we get all caught up in these things and what God's trying to say is, listen, it's not about what you're doing, it's about who you are. The doing will come. Yeah. Focus on who you are. Focus on your walk with God, what God's doing in your heart and in your life. Examine your own work. What you are is more important than what you do. Let every man rejoice. Then he gives one of the commentators, Mr. Barnes says this, the secret to happiness, threefold. Number one, form an accurate, proper estimate of self. Know who you are. Know your strengths and know your weaknesses. We're good about owning our strengths, but we try to hide our weaknesses. Don't hide them. Own them. You can't fix it if you're not willing to recognize. The Spirit of God can't fix it if I'm not willing to recognize that it's a weakness. Pastor, you got weaknesses? My list of weaknesses is far longer than my list of strengths. So you're just trying to be self-humble. No, I'm, I'm telling you, I have a long way to go. But so do you. And if I'm not willing to recognize my weaknesses, I'll never make any headway. Secondly, lead such a life that it may be examined to the core. In other words, be honest as to who you are. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. But if you're examined, let it be said that you are who you are. I, I, I think, <clears throat> I, I don't think that any of my four children could lay a charge that their mother or I were different at home than we were at school or at church. I think that if you got them off isolated and said, were your parents different people at home than they were in church? Were they different in private? than they were in public. I don't, I don't think that any of them could honestly say that that was the case. 
We have our strengths, we have our weaknesses, but we also have our integrity. We are who we are. And we don't, that doesn't mean that we are who we are proudly, that this is just who I am and I'm not going to do anything about it. We, we know where we need to grow and what we need to overcome. But be consistent. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. If you're a new Christian, own it. If you're an older Christian and struggling with besetting sin, own it. If you own it and you're honest with yourself, with God, and with your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you stumble and fall, it's not, oh, can you believe I thought this great godly person? No. I'm not saying you need to walk around with a billboard and say, these are my weaknesses. But I'm just saying that we need to be honest with our evaluation of self. You want to be happy? Live an authentic life. We need to know exactly who and what we are without being distressed or pained. Be honest and faithful to the discharging of our duty to God and man. And I, and I, would, I would kind of deviate or take the side from that and put this in my own words for a minute. God is not going to wait until you've changed to love you. He's going to love you while you are, where you are. Don't wait to rejoice in what God is doing in your life until you get all the way to where God wants you to be. He's not going to wait until you get there to love you. He loves you now. Amen. Rejoice in that and rejoice in what God's doing. And whenever you get to the end, then really rejoice in God. But don't live a life of misery because I've got to grow and grow and grow. And when I, if I ever get there, then I can find rejoicing. No, God loves you where you are and he'll love you on the journey and he'll help you and he'll strengthen you if we'll just let ourselves be honest with the spirit of God and own who and what we are. Thirdly, do not be dependent upon the fickle applause of the world for comfort. People change. Even Christian people in church. Somebody that loved you for something today will hate you tomorrow. We had somebody that used to be in our church just this week. They suffered a great tragedy. Our church has paid bills for them. It's helped them in many ways. The church has overlooked things that they've done uh, back at the church. And my wife sent a text. I mean, we've, we've gone really over the years to spend tons of time, hours of time. Uh, and my wife sent a text just say, hey, we're praying for you. Never even got a response. It's amazing how quickly people will forget what you do. Don't worry about, don't find your, if you're going to find your rejoicing in people, you're never going to be happy. Amen. Our rejoicing is in the spirit and the love of God. Mr. Barnes said this, the man who has no internal resources and who has no approving conscience, who is happy only when others smile and is miserable when they frown, is a man who can have no security for enjoyment. The man who has a good conscience and who, who enjoys the favor of God and the hope of heaven carries within him the source of perpetual joy. It is my walk with God. I would say this, that to, to, live, uh, to live in an empowered life in the spirit is one that's resolved to live with integrity, but secondly, it's one who's resolved to learn with the intentions to labor. I'm resolved to learn with the intention to labor. I'm not just gaining this because I, I intend to use it for the glory of God. In verse number six, he says, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Let him that is taught in the word. Now, almost every commentator equates this to financially supporting the, the, the basically the pastor, the staff of the church, the mentor, the teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm, maybe it's there. I I'm, I'm tend to see it more as a give and take. 
And maybe I'm wrong on this and they're right, but I just, I'm looking at this in the context and I'm saying, let him that is taught in the word communicate. And sometimes in the New Testament, it did mean that and it can mean that also, but I don't think that's all that it means. Let him communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. If I'm going to help you bear your burden and I'm leading you, you got to communicate when you're struggling. Don't be mad at the brothers and sisters in Christ whenever they weren't there for you if you didn't communicate to them. We had someone that used to come, they were very erratic in their attendance and they had a health problem. And I, I mean, it, would, it was not unusual for them to be here one week and not be here for a month and then be here for two and then not be here for a month. Uh, and they had a, they had a health crisis and they had gone through it and they were over it and they were back at work within about two, two and a half weeks and no one ever called, no one ever reached out. They never told anyone. People in our church lived in their neighborhood. They never bothered to say, hey, pray for us. Or uh, can you let the pastor know that we've got this? Listen, if I don't, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that Brother Harold's here this morning. Amen. He'll be mad at me for saying this. But, uh, but he was here last Sunday morning just like he is now. Uh, he was all shined up like a pretty new penny and he's all happy and, uh, and everything was great. Uh, and if you go talk to him, I know he looks like he might bite, but if you go talk to him, he's very kind, nice. And, uh, and if you go talk to Brother Harold, uh, and then I get a message as I'm leaving Sunday night that uh, they thought he was having a stroke and that he was at the hospital. So I go to the hospital Sunday night. As I left here, I went straight to the hospital and uh, go in, and, uh, and he's clearly in pain. He's not, he, he's not able really to communicate. Then I go back on Monday, and now they're thinking it's not a stroke. And then it was like a, a block stenosis. Uh, then by Monday they thought they're looking for meningitis and, uh, and then uh, he's still incommunicable and so I'm there and, uh, and, and just visit and then Tuesday morning he gets up and everything's good. Was it the antibiotic? The doctors just said virus. That's just code for we don't know. The test didn't show us anything. I tend to think God answered some prayer. And then Sunday morning now he's right back here in his place. Praise the Lord. And if you didn't, now listen, if he would have given up there and then Miss Tamika's like, Pastor, you didn't come and see my dad when he was in the hospital. I said, I'm not coming back to church. I didn't know. It, communicate. And what I'm just trying to get across this morning is, listen, if, you are, or if you're being discipled by someone and you're struggling to understand something, are you communicating? If you need prayer about something, are you communicating? Are, are we walking together? Uh, and so be resolved to labor in the spirit. And he says, be not deceived. A man deceiveth himself. And then he gets into what we know. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Listen, the law of sowing and reaping is a law of nature. It's a law of God. And I'm not saying this morning that it doesn't mean that if I, that if I, that if I sow sin that I'm going to reap judgment or all of the things that go with it. He's made that pretty clear in chapter 5 when he says walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, he made it pretty clear uh, whenever it, it just, it, if, you, if you sow to the flesh you'll reap uh, corruption. If you sow to the spirit you'll reap life everlasting. But I'm saying when he talks about being not deceived, God is not mocked. In other words, God will not be fooled. And here's probably the, the, the shift in thinking that I think that we need to understand is that he says, for if a man thinketh himself to be something, in verse number three, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. I can't fool God. I can fool myself into thinking that my carnal act is a, is a spiritual act but I can't fool him. And mocking can mean standing up and deriding and distorting and mimicking and doing all those kinds of things. But really what he's trying to get across, I believe, here is this. 
is that I'm I need to be resolved uh, with the intention of laboring. I need to resolve to labor in the spirit. Be not deceived. What is your motive? Why do I do what I do? Don't be fooled. Don't deceive yourself into believing that your carnal acts are spiritual or that your spiritual acts are spiritual when they have a carnal motive. Secondly, he says, God is not mocked. What are your priorities? What are my priorities? They could not fool God with long prayers and with religious activity or with circumcision or with other methods of keeping the law. God could not be deceived. They were deceived, but God wasn't. And Paul says, listen, you want to add works to salvation? You're fooled. You're deceived, but God's not. And he told them earlier, oh, foolish Galatians. Same language. In the context of the whole text, he's saying here to them, don't be fooling yourselves or deceiving yourselves. You're, you, you put on the cloak of religiosity and you think that God is pleased and man is impressed. God is not fooled. If you're so into your flesh, see, and here's the way that we think. We want to go back and we want to define that by just the list of the sins of the flesh without taking into account how that manifests itself in the spirit. And while the one is accurate, it's not complete without a full picture. You're not spiritual because you came to church this morning. I'm not spiritual because I knelt and prayed. I'm not spiritual because I prepared a message and I'm not spiritual because I went and knocked on someone's door. I can do all those things in my flesh. You're not spiritual because you taught a Sunday school class. You're not spiritual because you operated the sound booth. You're not spiritual because we greeted people at the door. Those are all good, wonderful things. You're not spiritual because you worked in the nursery. And if you were spiritual when you started working in the nursery, by the time the service is over, you're not anymore. <laughs> Understand this morning, God is not mocked. What are my priorities? What I do, I do what I do. They could not fool God with long prayers and religious activity. He knew their heart and he knows mine. They're resolved to leave the results with God. I feel like we know a lot of that. By the way, I, I, I wrote this in the margin of my Bible. I saw it probably 20 years ago or more and something I've just always clung to. There's an old feed store in Ohio somewhere. There was a sign hung that said, if you do not like the crop that you're reaping, then change the seed that you're sowing. Good. You always reap more than you sow. If you planted a garden this year, you went out and you dropped a couple of, a couple of seeds for whatever plant. Uh, and then when, if two sprung up, you weeded one out so that the other one could be healthy and have room to grow. Uh, and you'll get a hundredfold what you planted potentially. You're always going to reap more than you sow. What we're, and by the way, you don't reap when you sow. Sometimes you'll be reaping late in life what you sown as, a, as an unsaved lost person in your youth. But I want to be sowing as much good seed as I can because sooner or later it's going to overtake the bad and the reaping is going to change a little bit and the harvest is going to get better and sweeter. As the years go on, I'll have more rejoicing in what I'm reaping than grief in what I'm reaping. A spirit-led life is a life that reaches out. 
And I say, before we get there, about leaving the results to God. And let us be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. We're so success-oriented, and we have such a distorted view of what success is in church life that we, we really think, oh man, uh, we're going to have, a, we're gonna have a, a, a spring program and we're going to have a goal of having this many on this day and we do all the work and we do all the prayer and we miss it by one and we can't find a pregnant woman anywhere in the building to add that one to it or, or a dog, stray dog walking across the parking lot and we leave feeling depressed and like failures because instead of getting what the goal was, we fell short by one. That's not of God. Be faithful labor, follow the Spirit, and leave the results in God's hands. He said, I will build my church. I'm not commanded to build the church. You're not commanded to build the church. The church isn't commanded to build the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Be not weary in well-doing. If we're doing for the applause and the praise of men or for checking things off a checklist or uh, making a bunch of goals so that we get some, some kind of imaginary trophy in our spiritual trophy cabinet in our home mind's eye, then we're going to live lives in which we are defeated and frustrated. God just said, walk with me. Love me. Help your brother that's struggling to get up. When you stumble, don't be too proud to let them come alongside and help carry your load. Have an honest evaluation of yourself. Love me and labor for me. Learn what it is to, to, to find joy and happiness in me. And if you do the things that the Spirit of God leads you to do and you give the gospel to who he leads you to and you pretend, I'm not saying don't participate in outreach opportunities at the church. I'm just saying that, that that's not the only time we ought to be reaching out. We ought to be actively seeking the Spirit of God to lead us every day to someone that's searching for Him and to give an opportunity for us to share our faith. And then once we've shared it and they trusted Him, don't leave them out there flopping around on the shore by themselves and don't throw them back. Bring them alongside and teach them they just became your responsibility to disciple and to help them grow. Let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And one final point here just quickly. A spirit-filled life is a life that's reaching out. Notice in verse number 10, and we, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. What, what does this look like? As we have opportunity, as the Spirit of God leads. Again, I should be praying, Lord, put someone in my path today that needs me. Put someone in my path today that needs you. Put someone in my path today that needs to be carried, that needs to have their burden lifted. Put someone on my path today that's willing to, to, to receive you, that's searching for you. Someone that wants to grow. Someone that has a hunger for the Word of God. Uh, someone that, uh, someone that uh, will, will come to you and will yield to you. As we have opportunity, am I seeking the leadership of the Spirit of God to those who are look, looking, that are hungry, and that are longing for Him? Do good unto all men. Lead the way to Jesus. What should a Christian's life be at work? Well, it's what you should be at work this week. Someone who's leading the way to Christ. That doesn't mean that you're going to get in everybody's face and saying, hey, are you sure you're going to heaven today? But it means that you're authentic and you're real and you're genuine. And when the Spirit of God draws someone to you and he nudges your heart to share your faith with them, that you don't forsake it, you don't chicken out, you don't say stubbornly, I don't have time for this right now. You're obedient to the Lord and you're praying for the opportunities to come. Amen. Do good unto all men. Lead the lost to Christ and love the brethren. Pick someone up that's struggling. Pray for someone that's, that's hurting. 
Cotton Mather, the great Puritan preacher, said this, the opportunity to do good imposes the obligation to do it. The scripture would say it this way, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. See, this entity of the church isn't just a club that we come to to worship God together on Sunday. Jesus gave it. He said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. I've given you a pastor, apostles, evangelists. Obey them which have the rule over you. Pastors take oversight of the church. To the church, Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not a blanket, blind, hey, do what the pastor says. I need the pastor's blessing on everything that I do. I don't have time for that and neither do you. What it does mean is that God has given us a living entity that Jesus Christ established and gave himself for that is his bride that he's put us into for the purpose of learning instruction, for the purpose of helping someone else that's struggling and getting help when we're struggling, for the purpose of being taught and encouraged and challenged, for the purpose of being rebuked and exhorted when we need it, uh, for the purpose of taking the gospel, for the purpose of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody were to come in here that's, that's uh, in, a, in a, a year or two or five from now, the one thing that I hope that's changed that makes itself very apparent when they come in, and it's happening some, an evangelist that was here recently uh, asked questions about it because he said it's very, it's very apparent what you are trying to do as a church and where you're trying to go. And my, my answer would be that we become a body of believers that are all about making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that you're waiting for someone to drift through the door that the pastor can pair you with and say, hey, pastor, partner me with somebody. I want to be a disciple maker. No, I want to be a disciple maker. I'm finding someone and I'm leading them and I'm bringing them and I'm investing and I'm discipling them. Not to say we won't partner people that come in. We will. We're trying to figure out the logistics of relaunching in June that very concept on Sunday nights during the service time. Why? Because we need to be disciples. And we need to be making disciples. Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ did and that's what he commanded us to do. It's not about just winning people to Christ. It's about developing them and growing them and so that they're reaching the world around us. Listen, my friends, this morning, as we come together, what are we here for? We're here because God loves us and he saved us and he wants to be a part of our life and he wants us to yield to him. And if we're going to be busy pursuing the lusts and the desires of our flesh, and if we're going to use the liberty that we have in Christ to just indulge in what makes us feel good, we're never going to see God do much of anything here. But if we realize, we sang it one of the songs this morning, Christ broke the chains of sin from us. One of the songs we sang this morning, Lord, let your grace and your love be a fetter that binds my heart to you. I don't seek liberty this morning, but from my sin. I don't need liberty from Christ. I want to be bound to him. Are you bound to him this morning? Will I yield to him this morning? Listen, when a life is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it will have a heart to restore. When you see someone struggle, do you, are you quick to condemn or do you have a heart to restore? When a life is empowered by the Spirit, it will look for a life and will live a life of resolve. It will live intentionally and clearly a life that is resolved to serve God and it will seek someone to reach. Is your life resolved? Are you eager to restore? Are you praying and looking for someone to reach? If not, 
perhaps we need to get in step with the Spirit of God.